been since we went on a family vacation? Uh, I guess it's been a while. Uh, why? So I've been figuring it'd be great to get some sun, some heat, you know, get away from all this greenery and ocean and temperate climate. Sure, Dad. Like a like a week, weekend at the beach or something? Uh, actually, we're going to move to Arrakis. Uh, just think of it uh, all as beautiful sand, the sun, and the, the sand. Wait, 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 wait. Move? To Arrakis? Isn't that like a hellhole run by our sworn enemies? Nah, 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 nah. It's cool. Uh, the Emperor totally says we can have it now. The Emperor who feels threatened by your family's power. That Emperor. Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, he said no back taxi. Uh, anyways, don't you trust my judgment? Dad, the men in our family don't exactly make the best choices. I mean, Grandpa let himself get gored to death by a bull. Hey, that could have happened to anyone. Dad, it's the year 10,191, and he was a duke. Who gets killed by a bull in 10,191? Great, it's settled then. Go get packed, and then your mom's creepy old teacher has a box she wants you, you to put your hand in. Ah, jeez, Dad. And scene. If you haven't figured it out by now, this week we are talking about the 2021 adaptation of Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve? Uh, well, we'll go with I that. I believe so. Sure. Close enough. Yeah. And uh, starring a bunch of other people whose names I'm going to mispronounce. Uh, Timothée Chalamet, uh, Oscar Isaac, uh, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Zendaya, Rebecca Ferguson... And a few other awesome people like uh, Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem, Charlotte Rampling, and uh, David Desmelkian uh, as the Mentat Piter de Fries. Uh, David Desmelkian, who has been what other in what other uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, masterpiece in the last ten? Uh, he was in um, that uh, that Blade Runner movie. He was. He was. Yes. He's in for about five minutes, and well, we won't say in case anybody the film. He's in for about five minutes. <laughs> I, Memorable, uh, though. I remember after I remember after seeing that movie, thinking like, "Who's this actor? He's really got a like a unique stage presence. Makes for a good mentat." He sure does. Yeah. Uh, the, the other he, mentat is sort of cuddly and grandfatherly, and uh, he was not cuddly and grandfatherly in this week. No, 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 no. So, uh, long-time listeners uh, of the podcast will know that we uh, saw and loved uh, Denis Villeneuve's movie Arrival. We did, yeah. And um, also, uh, you know, being being long to- a long-time fan of not just the uh, the Dune book series, but also the 1984 uh, David Lynch Four, yes. adaptation of this uh, attempt, maybe you could call it, at an adaptation of this film. Um, yeah, just to see this particular material being presented by this director, uh, we, we couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about it. Did you see the, I think, 2000-2001 miniseries by any chance? Or set of miniseries? I remember that I have seen it, and I don't remember anything about it. So they spent like $28, but it was great. Like, if you're only going to spend, like, if you and I, and we rounded up like 20 of our friends... And we did a miniseries 
and somebody got like a video toaster and was doing the special effects on it. Um, but like, like really people committed, right? And we're like, take as many hours as it takes, you know, if it takes us 12 hours to get through the, the through the first book, we'll take 12 hours. I mean, that's the, that's the mini series. It was, it was fun. But like I said, it was somewhat hampered by having a 28. Yeah, that, uh, that was, that was that time in, uh, in the sci-fi channels history when they just, they're just like, oh yeah, sure. Uh, we'll produce that. No, you can't have any money, but we'll produce it. Right. We need to fill up, you know, 24 times seven hours worth of material. And there's only, you know, so many Futurama reruns we can show. So, you know, we need something more. Exactly. Yeah. So this, um, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to follow on not just, uh, not just Arrival, but also uh, Villeneuve's uh, take on Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, um, and see, you know, how, how he managed to create the worlds of Dune uh, in this particular, with his particular uh, talents, um, and uh, so yeah, so I I have to admit uh, that having watched the David Lynch film more times than I can count from a younger age than I probably should have, um, it is seared upon my brain, and so uh, I I will not apologize for. Uh, making comparisons between this movie and that one, uh, because that's just what I'm going to do. Well, I mean, it's sort of, it's like, uh, whichever doctor who was the doctor who, when you were 12 years old, that's the doctor who, and whichever SNL cast was the SNL cast when you were 12 years old is the SNL cast. Right. Um, I also, you know, spent my formulative teenage years with the, uh, David Lynch version. I will have to say, um, and this is not going to be the last uh, comment that the easily offended might call a politically sensitive or politically correct comment. So if you uh, if you don't want to hear anything that has anything to do with uh, uh, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, then maybe this isn't the right podcast for you. But I will say the David Lynch movie is the most homophobic movie I've ever seen in my entire life. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. The whole Harkonnen situation is... Um... Yeah, it's bad. They're all SNM, They're all gay S and M fiends, basically. So, uh, yep. and it's it's really it's really done in a very very ugly fashion. I, I recently saw the Lynch version of Dune, and I was shocked at how. I mean, it just you know, like the fourteen year old me didn't catch it. Not one hundred percent surprisingly, um, but now I just and some of those actors are just they have great like chewing the scenery and everything like that. But you go back and you look at it, and you're just like, oh, oh, oh boy, oh boy. <sighs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, on you know, on the plus side, you get Sting and a speedo, uh, and on the minus side, you get like literally everything else about the Harkonnen family in that in that movie. Right. I mean, maybe we can argue that they have a conflicted attitude towards homosexuality because on the one point, all the Harkonnens are you know uh, S and M uh, sadists, uh, you know, gay S and M sadists. On the other hand, they present Sting and a speedo. So you know, or what looks actually more, I think of like a. Like a very tight-fitting diaper, more than a speedo. I don't know. It's sure, hard to, hard to say. space space diaper. I mean, everything. You know, it, the the whole subtext of this movie. Uh, if you if you want to take the uh, sort of like uh, life support um, uh, still suit piece of it as a, as its subtext is that is that everybody in this movie is uh, is pooping in their pants the entire time, uh, or at least when they're wearing mm. still suits. So you know, the the the, the diaper situation is believable. 
Yeah. So uh, do you want to take us through the, the basic setup? I mean, in our in our skit, we mentioned it's the year 10,191, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, again, so this is not my... the near future. This is the distant future. This is the this is this is not even the not too distant future. This is this is definitely the distant future, um, and it's a it's a time when um, you know it's it's still it's still a world of humans, uh, lots of worlds of humans, uh, but we have uh, traveled between planets that uh, somehow manages to get around the speed of light. Uh, people are 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 traveling in these. Uh, uh, giant space donuts uh, is kind of how they're presented here, uh, but basically um, these, these big uh, spacecraft that are able to fold space basically from one planet to another, and this is powered by something called spice, which we're going to learn a lot about. And we open with, uh, as our as our cold open did, uh, we open with Paul Atreides, uh, a young skinny fella on a planet uh, of Caladan. Which is a lovely place. Uh, it's it's it feels a lot like uh, um, I don't know. Would you say it kind of feels a little bit like like uh, Olympic Peninsula? Maybe kind of a feel. Yeah, to yeah, it? totally, totally Pacific Northwest. I, I have a question before we get too far into it. How recently have you read the book? I, gosh, it's been maybe fifteen or twenty years since I've actually read the book, uh, but I've, I've read it multiple times. Okay, it's been forty years since the book. <laughs> okay. Um, and I read it when I was like 13, and I should not have. Um, some books you should wait till you're a grown up to read, and kids, you should wait till you're a grown up to read Dune, because you will miss lots and lots of things. It is a dense text, and the psychology of it is very complicated. And so I read it when I was like 13, and I don't think I've read it since then. So somebody told me that Paul, one of the big differences, and, and again, not that the not that I mean a movie should stand alone, right? It doesn't need to stand on the book. But uh, somebody told me that, and I didn't remember this, that Paul is actually supposed to be kind of young and maybe not scrawny, but like we're you and I are used to Kyle McLaughlin's uh, Paul Atreides, who's Ooh. like twenty five, right, or twenty two, or something like that. And you know, Timothy Chalamet is not right. He's a he's a He's a much younger Paul. Did that? Do you remember what, like, in the book, how old is he supposed to be? Younger, like that? He is. Uh, yeah, he he. If it certainly, yeah, feels like he was kind of young. Uh, young Mister Chalamet is actually uh, twenty six uh, right now. Which but he's a young twenty six, right? He's a young and, like, and if skinny twenty six. You would totally card him, right? Absolutely. Like, he, yeah. He looked. Um, I mean, but yeah, I mean, you know, being. 42 myself i think that you know anybody under the age of 30 looks young um but but he's a he's a it's, young it's young 20 something i mean i have a 24 year old and a 21 year old and i think he looks closer in age to my 20 year old 21 year old than my 20 year old but whatever yes so um yeah so so paul and we sort of learn over the opening scenes here that's you know paul is having some troubling dreams they feel prescient to him um We'll learn a little bit later that that Paul is part of a, uh, a breeding program, which is not creepy at all. Uh, that has been run. Oh, no. <laughs> has been run by the Sisterhood of the Bene Gesserit, which uh, have been trying to breed a superhuman. And uh, there's there's all there's all sorts of uh, you know speaking of of gender representations, there's all sorts of really interesting gender politics that are just sort of I don't know not not brought to the forefront in this movie. Uh, but they're certainly discussed in a lot of detail in the books. 
Um, but basically, the you know the, the sisterhood has been trying to breed uh, a superhuman, uh, and the Lady Jessica, who is his mother, uh, is one of these Bene Gesserit. She's been instructed to uh, bear daughters, and she said, "Nope, nope, my duke, uh, my duke wants a son, so we're gonna have a son." And uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of his. <laughs> that's kind of a weighing on his his skinny shoulders at the moment. Can I ask, I don't understand the role of concubines in the year 10,191, because in, uh, at least in the West, in the last 500 years, um, concubines don't get titles, right? Um, Concubines are somebody that bear your children that will have titles, but they themselves don't have titles. So I don't know why she, I don't, Maybe I'm just picking nits here, but they think on a great length to use the, the, the scaffolding of, you know, Anglo-French uh, nobility, right? They have barons and dukes. And, yeah. and a lot of them in the books are supposed to trace back actually to, you know, terrestrial nobility, right? And uh, so I don't, I don't really understand the role of concubines. And later in the books, which, um, you know, there's going to be a part two to this uh, movie. So, you know, there's another character who winds up being concubine, but not wife. And it's, I mean, in the West, it's not a, it's not a great title. Like you don't like being a concubine is not a position of, um, you don't get a lot of authority or, you know, perks when you're the concubine, you just, your kids get, you know, the perks basically. So I didn't, I didn't understand that. Maybe, I don't know. It just seemed, it just seemed weird to me. And it's, it's partially because, um, I'll say that Denny Villeneuve has been criticized. If we ever get around to reviewing Blade Runner 2049, um, the gender politics in that movie are are a little weird. And um, the women that bit. I know, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a spread generally. The guys that I know generally, but not universally, like the movie. And the women that I know universally hate hate the movie. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I'm just sort of sensitive, to, and because the the book has is is mostly uh, a sausage festival. I mean, it's mostly male characters, but not universally male characters. So, you know, you sort of look to see how, you know, uh, how to, uh, what's the, what's the uh, artist's attitude towards men and women, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so anyhow, this whole, this whole issue of concubines versus spouses is interesting to me. And, and the book actually, uh, I'll, I'll save, I'll save an, I'll save an argument about that. When we, till we review part two and do come out in whatever, 2024 sure. or 2020. Sure. And then, yeah, I'm sure it'll, uh, it did just recently get greenlit. So um, I haven't checked to see if they started filming yet, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a while. Uh, and then, you know, maybe Timothy Chalamet will look, uh, maybe he'll look 18 by that point. Uh, we'll see. Right. I bet you some time will have passed, right? And so that's how they will cover the uh, fact that it's a few years later. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, filming is scheduled to start on July 18th of this year. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Um, so, yeah, so let's see. So we we, um, we actually laid out quite a bit of the um, <laughs> House of Trades history in our in our opening here. Uh, but but yeah, so basically um, the Atreides family on planet Caladan is uh, pretty powerful. Uh, it's run by a duke named Leto and uh, his Part of the family uh, mythos uh, is that uh, Leto's father was was killed bullfighting because um, that's what aristocracy likes to do is, is weird dangerous things um, and so you, you see this and there's a there's a recurring motif of there's a little uh, I think it's like a little bronze statue of a bullfighter in front of a bull and then the actual bull itself uh, its head 
is hung uh, up in, in the family hall, uh, and, and we'll see it is also moved moved to Arrakis uh, with the whole family. Uh, so yeah, so um, pretty nice life there uh, on planet Caladan. No one would ever want to leave except that uh, they get they get the best invitation ever to go vacation on a desert planet. Right, and it's interesting because. The 1984 version of the movie was criticized for having too much exposition. There's a fair bit of exposition in this version of the movie too, right? So at the beginning, they you know they show not they sh- they tell not show a bunch of stuff, and it's interesting because one of the reasons that they have so much exposition is they make a decision not to show the emperor, and this is a completely and again I'm, I guess we're just going to wind up comparing a lot of things to the 84 version, but the 84 version shows the emperor really really early right it's jose ferrer and uh and he has he's he's a great actor and he's a lot of fun um but they don't show the emperor in this movie and i loved it because you know what it reminded me of it reminded me of the godzilla movies where you don't see godzilla until like an hour into the movie right mm. they kind of build up the suspension uh mm-hmm, they build mm-hmm. up the suspense for godzilla i think they're doing that for the emperor because the emperor is a huge character uh, in the in the book and in the story that's in the movie, but they never show him and they never show any of his any, any of his interactions with anybody. And I bet you they choose someone really fun and interesting for part two because they kind of they have to show the emperor in part two. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, kind of an important plot point. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting because it's. Uh, I, I think when you put it that way, it, it really sort of underlines the fact that, that the Emperor is working behind the scenes, and in this case, sort of literally behind the scenes, uh, to get House Atreides to fight with House Harkonnen, uh, who's, uh, we've talked about already, they have until very recently been in charge of the planet Arrakis, and the Emperor said, uh, you know, we'll hand it over to these Atreides folks, but uh, just you wait. Uh, but again, this is all behind the scenes, uh, and so we, we don't, don't see any of this up front, Duke Leto obviously knows what's going on. He's he's aware that it's a trap, uh, but he says, you know, we're, maybe we're smarter. You know, maybe we're smart enough to walk into the trap and, and walk out the other side. But what do I know? My dad was killed by a bull, so we make great decisions here. And in fact, uh, well, it's interesting, uh, pacing-wise, because this is two movies. Uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. In the in the in the book and in the previous movie. The ramifications of making the decision to go to Arrakis uh, show up pretty quickly. In this movie, they actually take quite a while, right? We mm-hmm. spend a long time with the Atreides taking over Arrakis, right? With the their arrival and their setting up shop and all that kind of stuff. We do, yeah. And and so even even before the move happens, uh, they they do a lot of kind of setting setting up the Atreides on Caladan first. Right, we do do a lot of sort of wandering through the hills and some nice father-son chats about this, that, and the other thing. We get to meet, uh, we get to meet sort of the the two soldiers in Paul's life. So that's uh, Gurney Halleck, played by Josh Brolin, and um, we also meet uh, Duncan Idaho, uh, played by the great Jason Momoa. And um, these are, you know, these sort of like big burly dudes who are there as uh, sort of weapons masters and, and whatnots to, to sort of both protect the Atreides family and also to train Paul in a bunch of different things. And so we get to see a nice nice little sword fight and, and whatnot. I have a couple of things about Jason Momoa. First of all, he's a fine actor. 
You know, if, if we can say that Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford are great in Star Wars, we can say that Jason Momoa is really good in this movie. Like, I think he gets picked on and people imply that he's not uh, a serious actor. That None of those big guys, like he or Dave Bautista or Dwayne Johnson, he seemed, he seemed really good in this. And the second thing is, so you do sword fighting, right? What's the group that you belong to? I am in a uh, group that's called the Lonin League uh, here in Seattle. And, uh, yeah, it's a historical European martial arts group. We do a lot of sort of reenactment-style sword fighting. So here's my question for you. Jason Momoa is a huge human being, right? Like, he is an enormous piece of muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Do guys like that do well in sword fighting, generally speaking? I, so I'm by no means an expert and also by, by no means a, a, a large person um, myself. Um, but uh, what... What I can say is that it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, the at least the styles of both uh, European and some of the African sword fighting that I've seen and, and participated in, uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter um, how muscly somebody oh, okay. is or, or how big or how small or, or whatever. Um, kind of, that's a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit irrelevant. Oh, okay. I maybe I, I somehow thought that small guys had an advantage because they could. They were, you know, like gymnasts, right? Like you never see guys that are Jason Momoa size as Olympic gymnasts, right? You always see guys that weigh 140 pounds. That are, so I yeah, just didn't more, know more if sword less, yeah. fighting was one of those things that. Yeah, I, I just didn't know if sword fighting was one of those things that in practice, big guys like you know, we always see guys like Schwarzenegger up on screen wielding around a giant sword, but like a two-handed broadsword takes forever to swing, right? So I know that's always been a thing where like a guy with a giant broadsword is going to do poorly against a guy with a small, fast blade, right? And I just didn't know if, uh, but you, you're saying in, in practice, it's not, it's neither an advantage nor a disadvantage to be a gigantic brute of a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're, unless, yeah, yeah, unless you're, you're dealing with the, like the giant weapons that, that are in fact like super heavy and whatever else. Um, but for, yeah, all of the, all of the kind of, um, Basically, from a yeah two-handed uh, long sword all the way down to the, the things that they're using in this movie are, are really more of a kind of a one-handed kind of a saber kind of deal, uh, and those are you know I've I have friends who are you know 100 and 105 pound small women who are pretty great at handling those things, and uh, some some larger fellas who are also really good with the the tiny blades. Hmm. Well, thank you, thank you for explaining that. So yeah, so he's got two, not one, but two weapons masters, right? That are teaching him, and that are yeah. sort of additional father figures, right? He has he oh, has yeah. a, a surplus of father figures between his actual father and then these two guys that are both like fathers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so we meet these guys, and they're uh, they're heading off as as part of an early expedition force to go and check out and see just what kind of a disaster. The family is walking into. Uh, Paul wants to go with them, of course, and uh, Leto says, "No, no, no! You got to stay home." Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's. He, he's obviously very protective of his son. We see that in a, a number of scenes uh, throughout the early part of the film. Um, we also meet before they leave the planet Caladan. We also meet uh, the uh, the Bene Gesserit. Um, so we get this nice visit from. Again, we don't see the emperor, but we see the the voice of the emperor. Uh, who's this, uh, um, i find the name of this actor. Reverend uh, Mother Helen... Mo- Helen Gaius Mohim. Uh, yes. Uh, Gaius Helen Mohim. Um, yeah, so she she comes along with the, the envoys from the Emperor 
played in this film by Charlotte Rampling. Right. Um, who uh, you might remember for, from such uh, such great roles as um, Zardoz is what I was thinking of. <gasps> she was in Zardoz? That is we should true. Do Zard- we should do Zardoz sometime. Oh my god. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll, we will 100% diapers. lose whatever PG-13 rating we may have for this uh, podcast if we do Zardoz. Yeah. Uh, but yes, she was. Uh, yes, um, she was the the lead opposite Sean Connery in Zardoz. Um, but uh, yeah, so so she comes in um, and she's a little bit annoyed with uh, Lady Jessica Paul's mother for for having a son. Although this is obviously a a, a point of long contention that they've discussed before, because Paul is you know somewhere between sixteen and twenty four years of age at this point in time. So they've they've had this conversation before. Uh, but we we get our first uh, sort of confirmation that Paul is has at least some sort of superpowers. Maybe uh, when she she asks him to uh, put his hand in this box and uh, there's pain in a box, uh, and and basically it's a it's a test that she uses to see if he is in fact a human, which you get the sense means more than than what we would use that term to mean. Yeah, right. More than 46 chromosomes, bipedal, uh, you know, uh, anthropoid. Yes. Yes, it means can you you forego short-term cessation of pain for long-term gain, right? The idea being that humans can endure short-term pain for long-term gain, and if you're an animal, you can't. And yeah. this is this has become so iconic, right? This this the concept of the Gam Jabbar has has uh, just found its way into so much science fiction. It's just it's a great concept. It's a great scene, yeah. Um, so uh, she's and, and, and he plays it really different. Sorry, I'm sorry. He plays it really differently than again the 1984 movie. In the 1984 movie, Colin McLaughlin is just desperately trying not to take his hand out of the box. But Paul, but uh, Timothy Chalamet has like this transcendent moment like he's in a lot of pain and then he just pushes through it and then he just locks eyes with the reverend mother and he's just like i can do this all day right and she's like oh he is a badass yes yeah yeah so clearly she's looking for you know knowing that he is probably going to have these these superpowers that they've been trying to to inbreed um over the millennia uh she wants to make sure that he's not gonna you know, squander them uh, or, or do anything terrible with them. And maybe she learned something from this that uh, that helps her out with that. Um, yeah, anything else that we want to talk about on the planet Caladan before we, we leave for Arrakis? Uh, I had a couple other notes uh, from that. Uh, there was when the, when the Reverend Mother comes to visit, first of all, the Starliners don't operate like Starliners that I remember. Uh, again, I'm comparing it to the book. They don't operate like spaceships. They operate like gates. You can actually see in the movie, you can see the the horizon of a planet through the... Because the, the ship looks like... If you took a bagel dog and took the hot dog out of the center of a bagel dog, that's what those starships look like. They're They're... They're long uh, tori- or long cylinders with a hole. And uh, you can see a planet at the far end of one of those tubes in the movie. So it, it operates more like a portable jump gate than it does an actual starship. 
Um, so it was just kind of, it's kind of weird to me. It's very different than I believe it is in the book. Um, then the other thing is uh, the Reverend Mother and her uh, accolades show up on Caladan in a big starship and, uh, or a spaceship that, you know, comes down from, uh, from orbit. And it just seems sort of, um, I don't know, it just seemed a little weird to me that, well, I guess I maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pointing out minutia because I like the movie so much. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out just little things. Like it, it seems unlikely that that ship could come and go without notice. It's like a big spaceship that lands basically right in the <laughs> main part of the castle. And, and, you know, Lady Jessica tells people like, say nothing of this, tell no one. It's like, it was a giant spaceship that just landed here. Yeah. I don't know. Like, no, pay no uh, attention to the, uh, you know, to the, the giant four by four that is, you know, rolled coal through the middle of the, uh, uh, the middle of the castle here. It's fine. It wasn't here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I just, I loved Caladan and I loved the setup and I love that this movie took the time to show the family before they leave Caladan. Um, you know, that's, this is what you get from running a two-parter instead of trying to jam it all into mm. two and a half hours. And by the way, it's not a short, first half right it's Ooh. it's uh, over two and a half hours and it's just the first half of the book but the book's like yeah. 800 pages long right it's yeah yeah um yeah i guess since, since you mentioned the the spaceships i guess a couple of things uh since i guess nominally we're supposed to talk about these things um the yeah so the benny Gesserit ship you know it it's i think when it leaves right it sort of takes off from like a courtyard outside the castle mm -hmm. and Paul and Jessica are kind of just standing nearby. And so they, they, right. it's, it's the first time I think that we see how um, sort of like force fields and thrusters and like levitation and stuff is used throughout this movie. And it's a little bit, I wouldn't say it's inconsistent. It's just different from what we're used to. I think it's internally consistent throughout the movie. Um, so you see like when the spaceship takes off, you get like some some wind and the rain gets blown around or whatever, but it's not like a giant rocket plume. It's not some you know hot gases coming out of this thing because they're right. obviously very close to it. Um, and they play around with levitation a lot uh, a little bit later on in the movie. Yeah, it's clearly the, what they what they call reactionless drives, right? There's clearly reactionless drives here in uh, in the 21st century. Uh, in the planet we live on, if you want to go in one direction, you have to shoot stuff out in the other direction, right? Um, or you have to, you have to get a reaction force in the it that way. And when you're in outer space, the only way you can do that is to throw some stuff out the back end. And you can either throw a lot of stuff at low speed, or you can throw a little stuff at high speed. Uh, but you have to throw stuff out, and and it doesn't appear to be. They seem to have gotten around that problem here. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole um, this the the book that this movie's based on is incredibly famous for its world building. Right. One of the things in this book is there's like a 30 page appendix or a 30 page uh, glossary of terms at the back of the book. And like, there's this common thing where if you ask somebody if they've read the book, they'll either say yes and I love it, or they'll say no, I got like a hundred pages into it and had to give up because I didn't know what the hell was going. <laughs> and there's this real, there's this point where you get, you know, 100, 150, 200 pages in, and it's still just this immense world building. And you have to go back to the glossary and like, you know, what's chome? which is this gigantic multi-stellar uh, business empire, just all this kind of stuff. And it's just, I mean, it makes Lord of the Rings look sort of slapdash, right? I mean, Frank Herbert really put 
uh, probably more than any other mainstream popular science fiction novel of all time, uh, effort into the world building for this. And, and so one of the things is, uh, they don't have computers in the classic sense. Um, and they, they mention it actually in the movie a little bit. Um, but what had happened is thousands of years before, um, artificial intelligence had waged a war against humanity and humanity had barely won. And so basically computers as we know them, thinking machines were outlawed is what they say. So you can't have any thinking machines. So you have this, you have this world, these worlds that are on the one hand, very advanced and you have reactionless drives and you have faster than light travel. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you don't have computers. And the other thing that you have that gets introduced on Caladan, um, that's a big part of the world building, uh, are these personal shields. And what the shields do is they let slow moving things pass through, but they don't let fast moving things pass through like bullets or uh, fast moving swords or anything like that. So you can, if you have a fight between people, you have to use you know, slow moving weapons or your hands, um, but you can't be going too fast. And this combination of no computers and personal shields, and you can have shields of the size of spacecraft as well. They're not just people size, but you can have them people size. These two things together create a world where you very rationally have a lot of things that seem kind of like medieval, right? Because there's no computers, uh, again, because they don't generally use projection projectile weapons the way we do, like nobody takes a machine gun and just mows people down, right? That just doesn't, that doesn't happen because of these shields. It really does create a world that is fantastical on some levels and medieval on some levels, especially once you add in the royalty, you know, dukes, barons, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. I think it's important for people to understand that part about it. Yeah. And, and you even get uh, this, this really interesting balance of sort of uh, in, in the way that they build their spaceships and their um, other vehicles is you see a lot of things that are mechanized, uh, but the way that the mechanisms work maybe doesn't quite hang together the way that we would understand it today. So something, you know, something is, has, has evolved in the way that things get built. Um, right, we'll see, we'll see the ornithopters later when we get to, to Arrakis. Uh, but even, you know, even the, the Atreides spaceship, they just like, park it underwater for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and yep, just leave it, leave it underwater as one just, does. I mean, why not? Yeah. And the thing, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, maybe at this point it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a film cliche to see, uh, uh, I think, you know, used to great, great effect in, was it the first reboot Star Trek movie or the second reboot Star Trek movie? The second reboot, uh, second reboot Star Trek. Uh, yeah, okay, the the con one. Yeah, so yeah, you see the the Enterprise come up out of the ocean. You just ruined it. You've uh, just ruined the surprise for people who haven't spoilers. seen the second reboot. Spoilers for a very <clears throat> great movie. Um, but, but yeah, so like John Harrigan Harrison. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, like you, you see this the family spaceship come up out of the ocean and it is dripping water, presumably uh, salt water, but perfectly fine, not covered in barnacles, not rusted all to pieces or, or anything like that. So there, there's this, re this really interesting amount. And it's just like, it, it has like all these deployable surfaces. It has landing gear. It has all the stuff that like you really, really, really wouldn't want to have immersed in seawater for more than like a couple of minutes, uh, but it's fine. Uh, so it's the future. Because it's the future. Yeah. Um, so, uh, right. So, so they get to Dune. We get to we get to Dune. Uh, so, Planet Arrakis, then it's Dune. 
they show up and, uh, you know, everything's been ruined and sabotaged and, um, you know, generally the, uh, uh, I forget, do we get to see, we get to meet the Harkonnens on our, on our way to Dune? Uh, I forget when, when we first see them. Uh, I, I don't remember. I think, I think, yeah, because I think, um, I don't want to go too far into it. Yeah, but uh, Dave Bautista's character, I think, goes to see his, and we realize that the Harkonnens are not going away quietly, and they are not. Uh, they're not just being like, okay, well, you know, I guess it's what it's what the Emperor wanted. So, uh, and and Dave Bautista's character is supposed to be very, very brutal, but very, very dumb, and uh, so he's like, you know, he's very upset, and his uncle's like, no, this is all part of a, plan. and the uncle is played by the incredibly great, is it Stellan Skarsgård? Stellan Skarsgård. Sure, we'll go with that. Who makes every movie better. Every movie I've ever seen him in, the movie gets like bumped up one letter grade because he's in it and he makes it special, right? Like there's this uh, jokey little uh, King Arthur movie that's got uh, Clive Owen and uh, Keira Knightley in it. Oh, but uh, the main yeah. bad guy... Yeah, the main bad guy is Stellan Skarsgård as the as one of the uh, Danish invaders, and he's great, and he just makes the movie worth watching. So, and he's and he is wonderful in here as Baron Harkonnen, as just the most you know not in in the eighty four movie he's sort of a mustache twirling villain. Uh, this one is just like an old bull who's just going to kill everyone and take all the money. Yeah, yeah, I think the. Uh... Yeah, the 1984 uh, Baron is, he's, he, he chews all the scenery. And he chews a lot of other things, too. Um, but, you know, in this one, Skarsgård, I almost kind of wished that he would maybe maybe chew a little more scenery, uh, but but he manages to to give off more of an evil feeling by being a lot more methodical and uh, uh, sparse in the things that he says and does. Yeah, I mean, the 84 version, look, it's much closer to that Flash Gordon movie that was made in 19, where, like, everybody's <laughs> handing it up, and it's 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 a lot of fun to see. But, like, the 84 version of the Duke, or, sorry, the Baron, um, you would never believe that he was one of the most powerful people in the galaxy. Like, you could take one look at him and go, this guy's completely insane, right? Whereas Stellan Skarsgård is, like, no, he looks like the guy who would quietly and methodically amass power until he was a threat to, you know, especially if his family is controlling uh, Arrakis. Now, I, I want to mention something about Arrakis and Spice. Um, so, you know, much has been written about the idea that uh, Arrakis is an analogy for the Middle East, right? And Spice is an analogy for oil um, because Spice does everything, right? Spice uh, is fuel. Spice is, uh, it allows people to live a longer life, um, and it allows, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other major, like anybody who's got powers, any kind of supernatural powers, it's powered by the Spice. It allows the, the navigators who pilot these giant spaceships to, to go between space. So it's really, it's supposed to be an analogy for oil, and there's a question on exactly how tight that analogy is supposed to be, because I read a book a few a number of years called the kingdom which is about the founding of modern saudi arabia and i thought there were a lot of analogies between the harkonnens and the heshemite kingdom which is the folks that uh jordan Jor the jordanian royal family is descendants of the heshemites and the heshemites used to be in saudi arabia and then they got sort of pushed out 
by the Saudis, by the House of Saud, uh, by Ibn Saud. And so then they went on to form royal families in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. And then the royal families were overthrown over time in Iraq and Syria. And the only place they're left is Jordan. But um, if you read a history of modern Saudi Arabia, um, it's hard to not think that this is supposed to be not just a not just a metaphor for the Middle East, but like a really explicit, you know, what if what if the modern Saudi Arabia had happened 10,000 years in the future and it wasn't, uh, you know, petroleum, but some other substance that would have an equally important role in a in a future universe. So and, and this is going to come up again because not only did. Frank Herbert make it at the very least a metaphor for the Middle East, if not an explicit uh, analogy. But he also had, when we get to the people who live on Dune, uh, well, let me, let me come back to that. Let me come back to that whole thing about how close is this analogy supposed to be to the modern Middle East? Because it's going to come up again um, when we talk about some of the characters that we, once we get to Arrakis. But can I just say the first scene on Arrakis is um, them landing and they immediately get in these ornithopters. Right, which are uh, really are done really poorly in the 1984 movie, and they are so gorgeous and so like they instantly create a great new uh, spacecraft uh, vision and uh, imagery in this movie for for like the lexicon of science fiction forevermore because they do such a good job with these ornithopters. Do you? Do, I mean, do you agree with that? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean the the ornithopter is is um, you know when when you read a book for the first time, uh, at least the way that I do it, right, is is that you sort of build an image of the things in in the book, especially in science fiction, right? You build an image of what does this person look like, what does this piece of equipment look like, what does this spaceship, what does this ornithopter look like, and you know the first first couple of times I read the books, um, well, first of all, I read the books after seeing the movie, uh, the '84 movie. And uh, I was like, oh no, okay, this, now I know what an ornithopter is supposed to be. Uh, it's not whatever David Lynch represented. Um, but I was you know, envisioning something a lot more, a lot sort of bird-like, um, right? You know, single pair of flapping wings, nice kind of big, uh, you know, big bird-like wings. Um, and, but seeing this, this particular uh, version of the ornithopter, uh, it, it was really like, oh wow, this is cool. Like this is, I'd never thought about this, but this is amazing. Yep. Yeah, I mean they're they're giant dragonflies basically. Um, they they look like dragonflies. They have a big head and wings right behind the head, and then a long tail, and they buzz like like dragonflies. And uh, but I mean Villeneuve does such a nice job. It reminds me actually of uh, James Cameron. I would say Villeneuve is up there. Villeneuve and Cameron are the two science fiction directors who create the most complete worlds when they when they envision a world you know the cameron is famous uh people have said if he shows a door in a in a the frame of a picture if you ask him what's behind that door even if we the audience never see behind that door if you ask james cameron what's behind that door he'll tell you because he's thought about what's behind that door and villeneuve i think does the same thing with everything in this movie um it all makes sense if it were I mean, if, if, if that's okay way to put it the ornithopters and there's there's a scene later where an ornithopter is getting sort of beaten up by a storm and it it just makes sense in a way that hardware oftentimes is just sort of magical right mm -hmm. um arthur c Clarke has a famous 
saying, which is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And when you have a technology that's 10,000 years in the future, it would be very, very easy to have everything look just sort of magical, right? And uh, Villeneuve resists that urge. And the ornithopters look gorgeous. And, you know, the windows and the doors and the control panels and all that stuff looks like it was designed by somebody who's de who designs aircraft, right? I, mm -hmm. I sort of wonder, did he have, did he get Weta involved in this? I sort of wonder who did the, uh, the design elements. You know, the original Blade Runner, uh, Ridley Scott was famous for hiring Sid Mead, who was a futurist who did that work. And ever since Weta came along in 2000 for the Lord of the Rings movie, they've done a lot of futurist work for a lot of science fiction movies um, because they have people who will make cool pictures of, of all sorts of spacecraft and how they would work and stuff like that. And I just sort of wonder if Villeneuve had some futurist artist that he worked with because this stuff was, was, uh, was just really well thought out, I'll just say. It was, yeah, yeah. I've, I'm sort of looking forward to you know, buying the... Uh home movie version of this on iTunes or whatever and getting some of the, you know, making of behind-the-scenes stuff to get some more on that. Um, yeah, to, to sort of maybe dig in a little bit more into the Ornithopters, too, uh, you know, the the thing that, that's still sort of, like, I've been trying to figure out is, you know, could could you build, or what would the mechanism look like if you built something that could, that could move wings like a dragonfly's wings, you know, something of that size, carrying that amount of load of a, you know, let's say it weighs as much as a small helicopter, maybe. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's, you know, yeah. it's it's basically, you know, something like a two-stroke motor, maybe, connected to, um, I don't know, something on a cam that's, that's moving these wings up and down. Uh, what materials would you have to use so that the wings are able to, to vibrate like that without coming apart and cracking and whatever else? Um, I don't know if you had any, any, any thoughts that say... Uh, someone who knows a lot more about mechanisms than I do. Yeah, I mean, it's actually tough to get a big... You can move small pieces of equipment very quickly, or you can move big pieces of equipment very slowly. Um, and it's really hard to move big pieces of equipment very quickly. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know how they would, how they would do it uh, exactly. The accelerations would be really, really big. Um, yeah, I have, I have thought about it. I've sort of nerded out on if somebody told me you're how to do it. Um, I think you would actually make it flexible. You wouldn't make a mechanism. You would make it have flexibility at the root, and then you would excite that mode, um, mm. through inputting, uh, energy at the, at the modal frequency. Um, but, eh, who knows, right? It just, uh. <laughs> It looks gorgeous. It behaves like a real mechanism. It just looks like somebody decided, okay, we're not going to use fixed wing aircraft for whatever reason. We're going to do something that's vertical takeoff, vertical landing, and we're going to uh, use it different than thrust vectoring, which is um, how we do vertical takeoff, vertical landing, which is where you have a jet engine, but you just turn the jet thrust vertically, right? This is a very different solution to that problem. And just, it looks so gorgeous. Everything in this movie looked gorgeous. I know some people have argued that the movie has sort of a brutalist um, design style. You know, everything is immense. You have very long, you have a lot of views that are very long, looking at gigantic spacecraft and gigantic halls and gigantic uh, pieces of architecture. But it's just every image in this movie is lovely. 
Like this is the only way that I can put it. It's mm-hmm. um, I thought more so even a lot of people like the look of Arrival, and I like the look of Arrival. But uh, you know, uh, there's very few. I mean, I would put this movie up there with the original Blade Runner in terms of having a visual signature completely unique from other uh, science fiction films. The you know what movie it actually most closely reminds me of is uh, Forbidden Planet from the 1950s because in Forbidden Planet they they have a lot of um, sort of maximalist architecture because they're dealing with an underground uh, city that was made tens of thousands of years ago by a dead alien race so it's a movie from 70 years ago kids but um, that that's the movie that this most reminds me of in terms of having a consistently vast scale for the architecture and the, and the things that humans uh, humans are very small on Dune Right, the planet is very big. Spacecraft are very big. The buildings are very big. People are just a very small thing in this very big place. Yeah, yeah, and, and so right. So the 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 main city of Arrakis, um, you know, sort of describing it here, right, the city of Arrakeen, is it's this like giant, basically carved out of sandstone, uh, sort of almost you know pyramidal ziggurat kind of construction, um, and it's. Yeah, but it, it, it does feel very, very vast and very imposing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the way that it's built is sort of sort of cowering uh, amongst the foothills to, to hide itself from the, you know, the terrible weather and, and heat and sandstorms and, and uh, we'll learn later also sandworms on the planet Arrakis. Um, so it's, just, it's really yeah, they, like... They, yeah, they allude to sandstorms that are so intense they'll uh, cut metal. Right, the yeah. sand will, which is actually a thing. Right, there's a thing called a uh, water jet, and if you put, uh, if you put, uh, people usually put uh, what crystal, like amethyst crystal or garnet. Um, garnet thank you, um, and you put it in high pressure water, you can actually cut metal with it. Right, and uh, hypothetically, you can do the same thing with high speed winds, uh, given enough wind, enough time. Ooh. So uh, clearly, yeah, tough, uh, tough environment. Yeah. Uh, so let's see here. Um, so yeah, a lot of lot of great uh, world building as we meet the planet of Arrakis. Um, the uh, so you know, we, we so slowly get introduced to the ridiculousness of being uh, this sort of like feudal society that likes to wear big fancy uniforms and and long flowing veils for the the ladies at courts and and whatever else is. Uh, uh, people are trying to move around outside in this completely punishing heat uh and and there's a a nice little moment where uh duke leto is is basically out in a in a shaded part of of the uh of the castle that he's in um looking out over the city and is told uh you need to go inside uh because we can't have the windows open anymore because the the building's going to completely overheat uh that's just how high it is yep Yep, you get the sense that the buildings are so huge, partially because they need to heat sink, uh, so that they uh, heat sink is a thing where if you live in a gigantic concrete house, the house never gets very warm or very cold. It just kind of um, sits at the average daily temperature. So if you live someplace where, like in the desert, uh, big concrete houses are are great because if it's a hundred during the day and forty at night, then it averages seventy degrees in the house, right? 
So it's 70 at night, 70 during the day. And you get the sense that that maybe is part of why the architecture is the way that it is on, mm. on Arrakis so that during the heat of the day, it doesn't get too crazy hot. But uh, uh, but we do get very shortly, um, despite how incredibly uh, severe the climate is, we find out that there are people living on Arrakis, like not just in Arrakeen and the settled cities. Right, so we, we start to meet some of the, the Fremen, right? So uh, these are people who are living out in the desert. Uh, some of them do live in the city, uh, and we're told that you can identify them by their their blue within blue eyes, which is another side effect of being around uh, spice. Um, and uh, yeah, so we meet we meet some of them uh, immediately. Sort of, you know, Paul Paul meets them uh, as he's kind of coming into coming into the fortress there on Arakeen. And um, I think his mother, Lady Jessica, also meets a few as she's interviewing uh, housekeepers uh, for, for the house, because that's a thing that you have to do when you run a giant fortress. One of the things that is a little am uh, ambiguous in the movie and in the 84 movie is the extent to which Paul... So so when it, right after you meet the Fremen, uh, integral to meeting the Fremen is the fact that they have this whole mythology of that a, someone from another planet will come and save them. And uh, they immediately start to think that perhaps Paul is that person. But the thing that's complicated and that I think is a, in some sense is a problem uh, with the movies and maybe even with the book is it turns out that they believe this because over thousands of years, the Bene Gesserit, and they mentioned this in the movie, the Bener and Gesserit have sort of set up these mythologies on these planets uh, of a protector who's going to come and save them. And I believe that in the books, it's seen as a tool such that when they come to the planets, they can use these mythologies that, that have been around for a long time to do whatever it is they want to do at the time. Like it's basically a myth building that they control. But the, the problem is that Paul has visions of the future right and he can uh you know i i feel like they're a little cagey about whether paul is anything special mm -hmm. right like the bene Gesserit have been breeding this what they call the quizich haderat uh for they've been trying to breed one for a thousand years and you know they think maybe paul is the quizich haderat and the fremen think maybe paul's this great savior that's that's going to turn things around for them and i think it's kind of an open question even in the books, as to the extent to which Paul is anything special over anybody else, or or whether Paul is just someone who happens to benefit from this myth that the that the Fremen have held for a really long time, right? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I guess he he does have powers, and his descendants have powers, but they're weird. They're like the ability to communicate with your ancestors directly. Like if I could, like if I in my head could summon my grandfather, Harry Hudson Martz, and ask him some questions. Like, Paul has that ability, as does his children that has. But other than that, and it's it's hard to tell whether that's just a spice thing or, you know, do you get that sense too? Like, how much is Paul actually something special? Yeah, and the, the way this movie presents it, uh, you know, similar to the way that, that we don't, we don't meet the emperor, we don't meet the, um, we don't meet any of the, um, uh, these 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 guild navigators, these creatures that can actually fold space, right? We don't we don't get a lot of the actual supernatural in this movie, um, and I think it's it's kind of 
don't know. It's it's an interesting take on it uh, because yeah, in the in the book, I think it's made a lot more explicit up front. Uh, in the '84 movie, it's definitely a lot more explicit up front that you know he's got these powers. Uh, but but really, yeah, you, you see he has these visions um, that you know we do get to see a little bit later on um, in, uh, in in the knife fight that he has towards the end of this film. Um, his visions actually coming true. Uh, so there's a little bit of that, but it's, you know, you don't see, uh, you know, him, uh, uh, you know, destroying people with his voice or anything like that in, in this movie. Right. Yeah. The, the whole, yeah. Yeah. It's, I could spend a lot of time comparing things to the old movie, but mm -hmm. I won't. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah. So what this does is, is, is right. It's, it, it takes, it, it takes what could be uh, a very like overt presentation of this character as this sort of magical savior uh, and sort of really brings it on slowly and, and builds that that both the mystery of it for the viewer but also I think the like the the character building of like he's just a like he's just a scrawny teenager and has weird visions uh, and is you know he wants to you know maybe he wants to be a fighter pilot when he grows up or something um, he, he doesn't want to be a duke he doesn't want to rule he doesn't you know all that stuff right so there's so there's a thing in this movie once we start to talk about the visions we have to talk about the fact that the one, to me, one of the most seriously flawed aspects of this movie is what a big deal they make out of Chani, the the uh, girl, like the the girl, right? The, <laughs> the magical pixie Fremen elf uh, of this movie. And his visions are in the movie mostly about Chani. And uh, they're not, I don't, I think it's a mistake. Like they basically make a bigger deal out of Chani in this movie, certainly than the, than the books do. And even if you say, okay, well the movie needs to stand on its own. I sort of wish it hadn't been so much about the girl, right? Like uh, she's an important character for sure, but so are all the Fremen. And mm. you know, she's a, she's a Fremen, she's a Fremen. Girl. And uh, I don't know. I just feel, I just felt like, they had to bolster. Somebody said, "Like you need more romance in this, man. It's all sword fighting and giant spaceships and, and laser beams and stuff." So uh, get 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 boy meets girl. So boy meets girl in his prophecy long before he doesn't actually meet her in the movie until about ten minutes before the end of the movie, right? More or less. And in yeah. fact, she doesn't do anything other than appear in his uh, in his uh, as visions, right? Until like the last ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you basically, um, it's 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 a it's an interesting setup of, uh, and, and maybe maybe a little creepy setup uh, of like, hi, I've been dreaming about you my entire life, um, and so that that means something. But then there's no there's no payoff in this movie, and, and probably Wolverine we're gonna see a lot of it in the second movie. No, uh, and, and he and he doesn't actually say like, hi, uh, you know, you're the girl yeah. from my visions or yeah. anything. We, the audience, just know this. But I guess I guess my problem with it is it's just the classic kind of girl as prize. I feel like like can't he be? I mean, because there's a lot going on with his visions that have to do with realities that may or may not happen, and what's his role in the future. And there's a scene that is a little murky. Well, we'll, we'll get to it. I'll, I'll, I'll mention it when. Uh, when. So, okay. so everything's great. Everything's great on Dune. Uh, things are going well, and uh, the Baron, or the sorry, the Duke, Duke Lido, is uh, 
making inroads with the local Fremens. Uh, he's basically said, hey, uh, we, won't, we won't pester you guys if you don't blow up our spice harvesting equipment. And uh, so everybody's getting along great. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so he meets, he meets uh, Javier Bardem, uh, who's sort of the leader, maybe possibly, of one of these groups of Fremen, uh, a guy named Stilgar. And they get along great, um, uh, more or less. And uh, we, we also meet the, uh, the planetologist uh, for, for this planet, uh, who's also called the, the Judge of the Change. He's appointed by the Emperor to, to oversee the handoff of the planet. Uh, this uh, doctor by the name of Leah Kynes, uh, played by Sharon Duncan Brewster, uh, is, is great here as this sort of like, what is, well, whose side is she on? She's on, she's on her own side, as it turns out. Um, right. And uh, so she's, she's the one, I think, who uh, helps them uh, learn how to use the still suits, right? So, so the Duke wants to go out right. and inspect the spice fields, so they got to wear still suits because you got to do that when you're going out into the, uh, out into the desert. And um, again, to compare movies and also to compare to the books, right? Um, the, you know, one of the things for myself as someone who's always been really interested in you know, life support technology and, and you know, keeping people alive in harsh environments. Um, yeah, the still suit was one of the things that really jumped out at me from, uh, from the 84 movie. Uh, and then when I read more about it in the books um, and they do, I think, you know, they do a, a decent job sort of explaining it in this, uh, in this without getting into too much detail, uh, right? It's basically a suit that you wear. It, keeps all of the moisture that's coming out of your body, uh, collects it. Uh, and then again, you know, similar to like, we don't know exactly how the ornithopter works, but it's, you know, take technology that we have today and sort of like extrapolate it 10,000 years into the future. Um, yeah, still suit could possibly be a thing that exists in, in the year 10,000. Um, well, and these, these Fremen have been living on the planet for thousands of years. And there's oh, a yeah. scene where Duncan comes back from spending some time with the, with the Fremen. And he's explaining to Duke Leto's personnel, like, they have all this cool stuff. They have a thumper that'll call the, that'll call the sandworms to them. They have these still suits. They have uh, these force projector things that will move sand for them. And, uh, you know, he just, uh, they've clearly developed uh, a lot of technology. One of the other things about the Fremen is that the Harkonnens at least had said there were only like 50,000 Fremen on the whole planet. And it turns out that Leto's people estimate it's millions. There's millions of Fremen. They just mostly live out in the desert and they interact with the, uh, you know, uh, imperial people as little as they possibly have to. So, so there's a lot of them out there. They have a complex society, and they've built all sorts of cool technology, basically. Right. Um, yeah. So let's see here. So we uh, we go on the tour of the spice mining. Um, so we get to see how it's how it's mined. Basically, it's a bunch of the spices sort of scattered over the surface of the desert, out out uh, out away from the big city. Uh, and they uh, another interesting piece of technology is, is we have this, um, you know, basically it's a piece of mining equipment, right? It just collects, collects the spice from and separates it out from the, uh, from the sand. But the way it's brought there is with this, uh, sort of combination, uh, levitation device, uh, force field levitation device and hot air balloon. Uh, and, uh, we get to see one of these come out and pick up or attempt to pick up, uh, the spice harvester. Uh, and and fail, so we get to actually see a piece of uh, futuristic mechanism uh, stop working. 
Um, but I guess we should explain why why they need to come and pick up the spice harvesting uh, equipment. Yes. So it turns out that the only piece of what we would call charismatic macrofauna uh, that exists on the planet, the only big uh, living thing that exists, are these things called sandworms. And the sandworms, they say, can be up to 400 meters long. So that would be 1,200 feet. Uh, so like a quarter mile long. And uh, they're just uh, immense. You know what they look sort of like is the doomsday device from the original Star Trek, right? The cornucopia <laughs> of doom yeah. that was uh, floating around the, the universe uh, destroying starships. They look kind of like that in the sand. And uh, they don't have any eyes or ears or anything like that or anything that would look remotely. They just look like giant worms with giant uh, maws full of teeth. Got a lot of teeth. Uh, that the Fremen, the Fremen will use those uh, teeth to make what are called Chris knives, which are these super sharp knives that uh, uh, are very important to the Fremen's uh, lifestyle and uh, the things they consider important and honor and all that kind of stuff. To have a Chris knife is a very big deal. But um, so the sandworms are attracted to uh, any sort of rhythmic sounds, anything that sounds like food, pretty much. They're gonna come try to get. And so these uh, spice harvesters uh, once they set down, it's only a matter of time before a sandworm shows up. And there's there's a specific thing where the Duke says, how often do sandworms show up? And she, and uh, Lee Kine says, every single time. So they know that, you know, you put a harvester down and there's a finite, finite amount of time that it can harvest uh, spice before a worm shows up. And these uh, carryalls are the solution to that problem most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, yeah, so uh, Duke's out there checking this out. He's got uh, uh, he's got Paul and the ornithopter with him, along with Leah Kynes. Uh, Sandworm shows up. They're like, okay, hey, time to go get the get the carry all and lift up the spice harvester and get it out of there. Uh, and this was a spot um, where you see the you see this failure happen. Uh, right, the carry all comes in, has four connections to pick up the harvester, and, and the fourth one just doesn't connect. And, you know, the engineer in me is watching this and going, well, gosh, <laughs> if you had... If the thing, <laughs> There's if an the obvious thing, solution to this problem. If the thing don't work when, when one of the four uh, things doesn't come out, maybe maybe you should have figured that out uh, by adding a fifth one. Um, or, right. You know. And kids in the engineering world, we call that one fault operative. If you have a system where you can fail one of the things and still have it work, you call it one fault op. And yes, why would this not be one fault off? But whatever, it's not. Yeah, it's not. And and, and, and your, I, your your car your car is not one fault off, right? If you lose a tire, uh, you can't drive. So right. Yes. If if someone lets the air out of my tire, which is which is basically what happened with this thing, uh, I'm not going anywhere. And I, I think to their credit too, right? The the idea is that potentially you could have another carry all sent out. Uh, there should be a bunch of these, uh, and you just call the next one and say, hey, you know. My carry all broke down. Let's get another one out here and, and potentially get out there before the the worm shows up. Uh, but the Harkonnens have been sabotaging equipment all over the planets. They've uh, so so presumably not only is half the stuff broken, but the other half of the stuff doesn't even work anymore. Uh, so uh, carry all's not working. Got a bunch of miners uh, that are about to get eaten by a sandworm unless somebody does something. And 
if it hasn't been established already, the, the Duke is someone who uh, doesn't just let stuff happen. Uh, so he's got he's to gotta rescue these people, right? He feels responsible for them. Uh, so we figure out some, uh, figures out a way to fit everybody who's on the harvester into their ornithopters. Uh, but in doing so, uh, it, it exposes Paul to spice up close and personal for the first time. And he has, uh, he has a very powerful vision of his future. Yeah, he basically has his most powerful vision yet, right? And this is the one where uh, he explains it to his mother, mother later in different circumstances. Uh, oh, no, that's sorry. That's a different vision. What's the vision that he has outside the harvester? Uh, this or is it of Chani? This is the Chani vision. Yeah. Okay. Um, Again, yeah. the girl. It's about the girl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but basically, it's, but, it's but, a power. Yeah, and but but it's also the one where maybe she kills him. Yes. Right. right. She, she starts to see blood and a knife and death and stuff. Right. And the role, her role in having a knife with blood on it, and his and who's blood is it i mean there's a there's actually a scene later in the movie where he has a vision about somebody teaching him and it actually happens that he winds up killing that person before that person has a chance to teach him anything so part of his visions are things that could happen but maybe won't happen depending on the choices that he makes uh there's a rick and morty episode uh that basically takes that concept and runs with it on uh future consequences visions of future consequences of, of decisions that you make um and how, what would happen if you actually, you know, tried to stage manage your life around those those visions? Um, but yeah, so yeah, we can say that Chani's relationship to him, uh, they attempt to make it be ambiguous, but they tip their hand because they make it Zendaya, right? And if you, you know, um, you know, come on, what are the odds? Uh, Zendaya is the female person. Uh, you know, I'm not giving anything away to suggest that. Uh, there's probably a, a future romantic component to uh, Paul and Chani's relationship because you don't cast Zendaya in that role uh, in, if that's not the case, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, she shows up in in the new Spider-Man Spider-Man series, uh, and you know, and she's MJ. You know what's going to happen there. She shows up in Dune, uh, and you know what's what's going to happen there, right? And can I say, I loved her in the Spider-Man series. I think she's been a lot of fun. In uh, She's not in the first movie very much, but the second and the third movie, she's in a ton, and she's great. I did not love her in this movie. And, and I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a second. Um, the Fremen aren't just supposed to be metaphorically like the Arab people here on Earth. They are descendants of their people. Um, uh, now, they don't say it in the movie, but they allude to it. Their cultural stuff is heavily borrowed from Arab culture. And uh, Frank Herbert has explicitly said that, and, and you find out in, I don't know if you find out in the book, Dune, but you find it in later books, that the Fremen are descended from Arab people on Earth. And there's been a big thing um, in the film world because they didn't cast any Arab actors or Middle Eastern actors to be Fremen. And um, not only did they not cast any Middle Eastern or Arab actors, I, I found Zendaya very hard to buy as a, as a young woman who's lived her whole life in a conservative uh, culture out in the desert in the middle of nowhere. I mean, she seems very much like a New York City girl who somehow wound up on planet Arrakis. 
And I just didn't, as, as, as much as I thought she was a great uh, part of the, of the Spider-Man movies, I just didn't, I felt like every time she came on screen, um, especially towards the end, I just didn't buy it. Um, she didn't have an, any kind of exoticness that you would expect from uh, a character, again, whose culture has lived out in the desert in severe conditions for 10,000 years. So I just wasn't, I just had a hard time with Zendaya. And, and more broadly, I do, I do recognize the, the weirdness of having characters who are explicitly Arab origin and not casting any Arab actors or, or even Persian actors uh, or North African actors to be uh, characters. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought she was fine. I, you know, she also gets to, um, I guess we, we don't see a lot of the, um, yeah, we don't see a lot of her sort of like fighting abilities um, we, you know, in, in this movie and then maybe in the second one we will. Um, but, uh, um, you know, she is supposed to be uh, a bit of a badass in her own right, um, in the, in the books, certainly. And, uh, we don't, we don't get a lot of that on screen. Um, I, I think she comes off fine. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, the, you know, the, the casting, the casting is interesting. Um, yeah, the Fremen are supposed to have been, uh, I'll make it probably too far into the book's mythology here. They're from a group of people called the Zen Sunni Wanderers. Um, so sort of a combination of the, the Sunni Islam and uh, Zen Buddhism. Um, so, so yeah, uh, um, it's it's certainly a, a diverse cast of of people playing the Fremen. Um, but yeah, maybe not not what you would expect. But then again, you know, ten thousand years. What are people going to look like? Sure. Okay. But, uh, you know, I can imagine if I was a Middle Eastern actor, you know, here is a culture that is basically built off of my people and they don't choose any of my people uh, as any of the actors in it, right? Oh, and yes. as yeah. great of an yeah. actor yeah. as Javier Bardem, you know, plays Stilgar and he does a great job in it, as you would expect. And the scenes with the Fremen are well done and uh, interesting and part of the great world building and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, really, is, is Hollywood's idea of the exotic actor, the Spaniard, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like picking Antonio Banderas, right? When you pick Javier Bardem, it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, they're exotic compared to your typical English or American actor. But I just, I would have liked to have seen, again, because the culture in the movie is so clearly descended from uh, Arab and Middle Eastern culture. I would have to see some Arab and Middle Eastern actors. There's a lot of good ones. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Certainly, it, you know, again, it's like the sassy girl from New York. And she, in that yeah, yeah. I mean, again, to compare it to to the to the David Lynch movie. I mean, Stilgar was played by the great Everett McGill, better perhaps better known uh, as as Big Ed uh, from Twin Peaks. Um, right, you know, you can't get more. Uh, Middle American than that, uh, and then of course uh, Shawnee played by Sean Young. Um, so yeah, uh, about as, as white as you can get there. Um, so anyway, so let's see here. Uh, where were we? We were uh, we met some spice. We met oh, some yeah. spice we, mining. The Duke, the Duke saved some of the local people. So now the Fremen like him even better. They realize that he's serious about getting along with the Fremen, and everybody's getting along great. Everything's fine. Uh, and then I suppose we should probably just skip ahead to the part where uh, uh, it turns out, yes, of course, it was a trap. Um, and 
the betrayal here, um, I guess we see, you know, we see the obvious thing, right? We see the, an attempt on Paul's life um, by a uh, some poor bastard who got walled up inside uh, of, uh, like, literally walled up inside of the fortress to control, remote control a, uh, uh, a drone to try and kill him. Uh, that that attempt fails, uh, but then, of course, they are betrayed by the family doctor, um, which is, uh, you know, again, they don't go into a lot of detail, but uh, in this version of the, of the story, uh, but um, Dr. Yui, uh, who, who betrays the family, he has been conditioned by, um, basically by, uh, it's called imperial conditioning, to basically not be able to take the life uh, of, of anybody uh, under his care. Uh, and somehow he manages to break that conditioning, uh, betrays the Atreides family, um, but uh, as part of his betrayal, he wants to also get back at the Baron. So we get this, one of one of my favorite scenes uh, in, in either film version uh, is the implanting of a poison tooth in Duke Leto's, uh, Duke Leto's mouth. Uh, and the idea there is, okay, I've completely uh, given you up. You're gonna die. Sorry. But while you're at it, while you're dying horribly at the hands of, of your mortal enemy, uh, if you wouldn't mind dying even more horribly uh, by poisoning him to death uh, with this, uh, this poison gas tooth that I'm putting in, in your mouth here. Well, to be fair, he does say, I'm gonna save your wife and son, right? And this is what I expect in return. You, you, you're going to die. There's no way you're not going to die. But I can save your wife and son, and I'm going to do that. And here's what I expect in return. Because you're an honorable man. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that works out great for Yui uh, in the end, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, we should say the way that the Baron got to him was, it sounds like relentless, brutal torture of his wife. And and the promise that the, that the Baron and his forces would stop torturing Yui's wife uh, and and they would be together uh, when uh, if he did this thing for the Baron, and uh, yeah. Yeah. so they are together in death uh, because his yeah. reward is the is the traitor's reward, which is uh, death. Yeah, that's great. Um, right. So let's see here. Uh, yeah. So Leto. So the Duke has this tooth in his mouth. Yep. Uh, we get the uh, excellent face-off between the Duke and the Baron, uh, and the attempt on the Baron's life, which uh, doesn't work as planned, unfortunately, for, for anybody really um, manages to, to kill literally everybody else in the room, um, but not the Baron, uh, for reasons um, which, you know, don't matter. Uh, so, right. let's see. So, the Duke is dead, uh, Paul and Jessica are spirited away to uh, their own certain doom. Right. Carry, carry yeah, there's, there, the there's, a, there, there's, a, there's a smart bit because the, the Reverend uh, Helen had said, well, don't kill Paul and Jessica. Uh, promise me you won't kill Paul and Jessica. And the Baron says, you have my word. And so what the Baron has his folks do is take Paul and Jessica out to the desert on the idea that, because the, the, one of the things that the spice can allow you to do is in the hands of the Reverend Mothers, it, you can use it as a truth-telling. Um, they have the ability to detect lies uh, 
um, and things that are not lies. And so uh, this will allow the troops to honestly say, no, we didn't kill Paul and Jessica, which is, his, uh, but they're just going to take them out to the desert and let them die out. There. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, they were alive when I pushed them out of the ornithopter in the middle of the desert. So it's fine. Everything's fine. Right. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, as might be expected, uh, they managed to escape. Uh, Paul, Paul and his mother managed to escape. Uh, we, we learn that they, uh, I guess we see this a little bit earlier in the movie, is, is, is this idea of the voice. Uh, uh, Jessica is teaching Paul this as a, one of the techniques that the Bene Gesserit have for control. Uh, this is one of their more overt techniques, is to actually do something with the voice uh, to, to be able to actually command people to do things. And we see that this this is to be taken literally uh, because one of the uh, Harkonnen soldiers on the ornithopter with them uh, is, is deaf. And so the voice doesn't work on him. Um, maybe this was done by choice. Uh, maybe it just happened to work out that way. Uh, but uh, either way, uh, Paul manages to get control of the voice well enough to get the uh, Harkonnens to, to free him, uh, and then his mother takes over uh, and gets them to all kill each other and set them free, except that the Ornithopter is then uh, disabled, and so they can't fly it anymore. Right. Which is a neat bit of technology, right? Um, remote, you know, disconnect. If you can do it with a Tesla, you can certainly do it with an Ornithopter. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so now they're out in the desert, and... Uh, Yui was a man of his word, and he gave them some gear to help them survive out in the desert. So they do, but Paul has a, another vision, and I fault the movie a little bit because I, even watching it the second time, it's a little bit hard to understand what he's conveying to his mother about this vision that he has because he's he's in this basically tent. And he's having this vision because the tent has spice in it, and the spice makes him has has these visions, have these visions. And uh, but it's basically a vision of the future where he leads a religious uh, extremist xenophobic uh, war against the galaxy, right? And the and his soldiers take up this banner of his, um, and it becomes a and it becomes a factor lurking in the background of the rest of the movie because now he's got to decide if he's on that sort of a path. Like, where what, where is this whole thing headed, right? And is that vision going to happen? Because, again, his visions are sometimes... Um, it's kind of like, uh, for those of us that are Lord of the Rings nerds, it's kind of like the Mirror of Galadriel. It shows things that were and things that could be and may yet be um, that's kind of how his visions work. And so, you know, is he taking steps towards creating this incredible religious jihad, really, that's going to go across the galaxy? And I think that one of his visions is the jihad on Caladan, right? He's yeah, in yep. a spaceship. Or he's in a vehicle floating over Caladan, and his troops are slaughtering people in Caladan. Just as an example, his old his old homeworld, right? That was so beautiful. So the, again, this just becomes a. These are the stakes, right? As he's moving forward in time, uh, you know, what's is he moving more towards a universe where he's going to become this basically agent of carnage, uh, or or what? Yeah, yeah. What do you what, what do you do with that uh, 
that sort of uh, vision or prophecy. Uh, and, and obviously, it, you know, it, it comes across a little bit uh, that, that, you know, it disturbs him, um, right? He sees, he sees this right. and he's like, well, I don't know what to do with this. This is uh, obviously terrible, but I don't know how to stop it or change it. Right. And thanks, Mom. That's the other thing, yeah. right? Like <laughs> yeah. this whole yeah. Quisette's like, Hadera uh, that the Bene Gesserit have been trying to breed for a thousand years. Like one of the ramifications, if he is, could be that he's going to lead this, you know, basically holy war uh, across the galaxy. So he's he uh, understandably has mixed feelings towards his mother's, uh, in you know, creating him through a thousand year breeding program. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, after the, this vision here, uh, the next day, um, both, both he and, uh, Jessica sort of, you know, use, use the force, I guess, to, to feel, to feel Leto's death, uh, right? So they're both, they're both made aware of it, uh, and then the next morning as they come out of the tent, uh, and, um, they are met by, um, Leto, uh, by, uh, Duncan. Uh, by Duncan Idaho, they, they, yes. Yeah, because they mentioned that they have an Atreides transponder, mm-hmm. or Atreides beacon, which makes me think it's a, some sort of coded beacon that only somehow magical technology that only uh, the Atreides can recognize. So uh, Duncan comes and finds them and saves them. Yeah, and, uh, and he says, hey, um, my Duke, terribly sorry, uh, Leto's dead. And they're like, yeah, we know, because uh, we use the Force. And he's like, "All right, cool. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna go run to the desert now, which takes them to um, to meet up with uh, Leah Kynes again uh, at this." Uh... Yeah, this, this next scene is the only part of the movie that I think is a little bit episodic and superfluous. Like nothing really happens in this next scene except Duncan. Right? I mean, they go to this place, and uh, the the Harkonnens find them and uh everybody dies except for uh Lee, uh, for uh paul and, paul and jessica in the yeah. end yeah yeah paul and jessica yeah yeah i guess we, we learned uh, we learned a couple of things um i mean one is i think this is the first time that we see one of paul's visions come true right he had he had a vision back on uh back on caladan of, of duncan idaho dying uh in this way uh, and it, and it, and it, he's in this one true. hallway, in a particular yeah. hallway. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and we learn um, from Leah Kynes, we learn about these ecological stations uh, as uh, as this planet was being set up. Um, basically, it was going to be terraformed, more or less, um, to become right. more more habitable until spice was discovered. And they're like, hey, you know, there's something that was learned about spice um, that they may may not bring up in a later movie, but it's you know the spice comes from the sandworms. The sandworms uh, can't exist on a planet that has open water, more or less. Right. Um, right. It, it gets into so it, it has to stay. Or third books, but, has but to yeah, stay the way that it is. Yeah, yeah. We need lots of sandworms so that we can have spice. So uh, sorry, you, your your planet is perpetually screwed right now um, by choice, right? Actually, so, there again, is one. Yeah, an intentional decision by the uh, emperor to forgo making uh, the planet lush and, and habitable. But there is one, actually, there is one earlier thing about the visions being true. Because when he has the vision at the harvester, uh, he finds out his mother is pregnant and he tells his mother. Mm. And she's mm. like, how can you know that? I barely know yeah. that. 
I've yeah. only known it for a week or two. How can you possibly know? So we know that his visions are more than just yeah. hooey. But I mean, we, the audience kind of know that because he's had visions of Zendaya and, you know, that's we've seen the happen, trailer right? and we know that she's in the movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. An actual thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyhow, I mean, there's this sort of the, this sort of this episodic thing. They go to this place and then, uh, yeah, they find out a couple of things and everybody dies except for Paul and Jessica and they go off in a, in an ornithopter and into a storm that looks a lot like the storm from Fury Road. Actually, oh yeah. Right. The dust storm from uh, mm -hmm. Fury Road. I don't think there's any flame tornadoes the way there are in Fury Road, but other than that, it's a it's a pretty hellacious uh, gigantic dust storm. And yeah. uh, they suffice suffice to say, uh, there's this there's this cool scene where they get up above the dust storm, and it kind of reminds me of a scene from uh, Do you ever see the Perfect Storm? Mm, yeah, uh, the uh, George uh, yeah. Clooney uh, boat uh, uh, fishing movie. So there's that scene where they almost get out of the storm, right? There's a scene where they see the sun on the horizon, and uh, uh, Marky Mark is like, "Oh, we're going to be fine, Cap," and the Cap's like, "Nah," -uh. and then they, you know, die two minutes later. Oh, spoiler alert for uh, <laughs> storm! Turns out, um, perfect storm. Everybody dies. Everybody else, yeah. Uh, except for Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, because she's a better captain than the folks on the Andrea Gale. But anyhow, uh, be that as may. So there's a scene in Dune where, yeah, they get up above the storm, and it's like, oh, hey, everything's great. And they run out of fuel like five seconds later. Yeah, yeah. It's so, a, and it's a cool It's a cool thing that, you know, we see, not only do we see more about how the ornithopter works and sort of how it has this ability to kind of, you know, glide when it's not flapping its, its wings, but we also, and I think this is the thing that Leah Kynes explains to them, is, uh, you know, the the dust storms themselves are hellacious. They will tear metal apart. They will, you know, they're, they're awful. But if you fly above a certain altitude, the, the density of the dust or something about it um, uh, becomes low enough that you can fly through it just fine. Like, it looks the same. It looks just as bad. Um, but something about, um, and I, you know, I... Both times I've, I've seen the movie, I wasn't paying enough attention to sort of like what the altitude was or whatever. But but it it's sort she of said kind of five thousand meters. Five thousand meters. She said okay. five thousand meters. Yeah, sure. So what's, so what's I, that? I, mean, I, I bet yeah. you fifteen thousand feet. Yeah. Yeah. What's that in America? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I bet you dust storms in the Middle East are closer to the ground because you can only. I mean, dirt only suspends so high. By the way, speaking of uh, dust storms, have you ever been in a West Texas dust storm? Out at the ranch, out at oh, the yeah. origin ranch. Yeah. Me too. They are intense. For people listening to the podcast, if you've never been through it, an honest dust storm, like you will know because it looks like a thunderstorm, except it rains dirt. And I mean rains dirt. Like dirt comes down the way water comes down in a thunderstorm, except it's dirt, not water. It is the craziest, weirdest thing. And uh, the winds in West Texas are not strong enough to uh, shred shred metal, uh, but they are. It is a it is a weird experience, I will say. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, so I just kind of looked up, you know, what's the air pressure at uh, um, five thousand meters? Uh, somewhere around eight psi, um, more or less. Um, so compare that to you know fourteen point seven psi down here at sea level. Um, so you know, if 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 Arrakis is roughly the same. Uh, size as Earth, you can assume um, a little bit lower lower air pressure once you get up that high in the atmosphere, and so uh, maybe potentially there's 
less air to whip the the dust around. Um, I don't know. I'm not or, following entirely. Or, but. You, or you can go into Google and type how high do dust storms get, and you find out several thousand feet high. So there you go. the idea that the uh, the idea that even on mighty Arrakis, that maybe five thousand meters uh, above which they wouldn't be there, uh, sounds plausible. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So they get so they so they get above the bad weather and uh, everything's going to be fine. And then they five seconds later run out of fuel. Sure. Yeah, because uh, this ornithopter has been sort of stashed uh, by Liad Kynes for who knows how long um, for what kind of right. reason. Um, but you know, any any ornithopter in a storm. Uh, and uh, sorry, it didn't have enough fuel. That's a Fremen. That's <laughs> isn't that a Fremen saying? Any yeah, any ornithopter yeah. in a storm? Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably. Maybe, maybe, not. maybe not. Yeah, but it should be if it's not. Uh, so yeah, so they, uh, they so managed they to survive this crash somehow. Yeah, uh, sure. That takes a little bit of that takes sure. a little bit of uh, suspension of disbelief, honestly. Because I, I mean, I get it; it's a flying vehicle, but it has no lifts other than the wings, which have been torn off. Uh, so actually there's one wing left and he folds it back against the body, uh, to get aerodynamics. But at that point, you're just, a uh, a lawn dart, right? It's a, yeah, it's a, a, a falling from the sky. Um, and yeah. you know, you could maybe say that they've got enough horizontal velocity that they can kind of ride out the landing, but you know, it looks, it looks pretty brutal. Um, but yeah, since, since there are main characters, uh, they are fairly, unbroken and unbruised and uh, maybe just a right. little stunned and are able to, to get out and head on their way. Uh, but, of course, the crash being a somewhat rhythmic noise uh, is attracting a, uh, a sandworm. And, and, then, and then Paul realizes that they're on drum sand, which is a thing that doesn't get explained in the movie, but is sand that is particularly, it's like compacted near the surface and it acts like a drum and any motion uh, may, is even louder and is amplified in greater distances. So it's like walking across a drum head. And so of course a, a worm uh, shows up and they get onto a little piece of rock, a little rock promontory. And uh, it looks like maybe the worm's gonna eat them. And then someone sets off a thumper Someplace away, someplace else, which is a thing that the Fremen do to summon a worm. When you don't want to summon a worm right where you are, you want to summon a worm nearby. Um, and they don't explain this very well, but they can climb on top of the back of worms if they if the worm passes them by. Um, and we don't see that in the movie. We see somebody setting up to uh, get on a worm, but they don't really explain why someone would be doing that. But anyhow, somebody sets off a thumper and the worm goes away and they are. But who is that someone? But who could it be? Uh, yeah, so they, they sort of keep keep making their way through the desert until they find uh, these these particular someones. And, and, and this is where um, I think it's as uh, before the sandworm gets pulled away, right? Like Paul gets another whiff of, uh, of spice uh, fresh, fresh from the sandworm's gullet, uh, which has got to smell right. wonderful. Um, I think so. And, uh, you know, rather than, than passing out like any normal person probably would at this point, uh, he's, uh, yeah, he sees a vision, uh, as you were describing earlier, of this, uh, this guy who's like, hey, I'm your friend, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you some things. Uh, and uh, when they find their way to uh, where the Fremen are, are hiding, uh, it turns out this guy's, uh, this guy's one of them. Or the Fremen find them, really, is what yeah. happens, right? Yeah. They're, they're walking along. And then all of a sudden they realize that they're surrounded by a friend. 
Um, so yeah, a couple of people from his vision, uh, his uh, his friend and, and teacher, uh, supposedly, and and then of course, uh, Dream Girl uh, Chani right. is also there, along with uh, Stilgar, fortunately. Um, so Stilgar recognizes that these aren't just like regular people, um, but they might be important because uh, when you meet a Fremen in the desert and you're not a friend of theirs, uh, what what are they gonna want to do with you? Uh, they're going to want to take your water and add it to the tribe, which means uh, put you inside a giant press and uh, squeeze out all the liquid. Yep. Yeah. So uh, the you know the one thing that is the most precious out in the in the desert is water, and uh, here come these these two ambulatory bags of water uh, coming out of the desert. Um, and right. gosh, what are you what are you going to do? Right. So, uh, but, and, and then there's a, there's a great scene where Silgar's like, okay, well, the boy maybe will be valuable to us growing up, but, uh, the mom, not so much. So we're going to, we're going to take her one. Yeah. Yeah. And, she's, uh, she's too old to learn. Jessica's like, yeah. And Jessica's like, nah, and, uh, so she defeats Silgar, uh, in combat and Paul kind of hightails it for high ground. And so there's a great scene where, uh, she, He's like, why didn't you tell us you knew the weirding way, which is a way of fighting? I guess that the Bene Gesserit know. I think that's is that yeah, where weirding yeah. comes mm-hmm. from. Um, so he's like, oh no, no, now you're now you are valuable. Uh, we, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna press. You know, we're not gonna take your water for the tribe. Paul can come back, and everything's gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be fine, uh, except for uh, Mister Teacher Guy. Uh, it turns out. He's uh, he's like no 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 no. Um, these are outworlders. They're here entirely to oppress us. They're they're part of the Imperium. Um, the only good Imperial person is a dead Imperial person. So we just need to kill them and take their water. Uh, and and Stilgar, you're weak for even thinking otherwise. I mean, yeah. The letter of the law is whoever is strongest is in charge. And there's a rule that you can challenge whoever's in charge. So this woman beat you. So she's in charge. I'm challenging her. She, I'm not going to fight her because she's a girl. So who is going to be her stand in, in this fight? That's the, that's the legalese, uh, Fremen legalese of his argument. And so Paul winds up having to fight him. So he had had this vision of this guy being his mentor and it uh, does not come to be. That, that vision does not happen. Yeah, I, and, and I, I read that as uh, sort of the, the the typical, like, well, you just misinterpreted your vision kind of thing, um, where the, the, the lesson that Paul takes is not a, is not a literal lesson taught to him uh, with words, but the, the lesson of what it takes to become a Fremen, which is to, to, to become this much more um, ritualistic um, fighting uh, person um, uh, in in this particular society, right? You you have to show power in order to to be accepted. See, I read it a little differently. I read it as somehow the the first meet between the Fremen and Paul and Jessica got screwed up, and under different circumstances, that guy could have become a mentor to Paul. Hmm. But somehow, something in that meet meetup went wrong, and they you know it's one of those choose your own adventures, right? And they chose page 77 instead of page 123. 
And so the outcome was this guy was going to become a sworn. Enemy. But there's a there's an earlier vision. So when Paul and Jessica are wandering before the Fremen show up, there's a there's a weird scene where he sees he has a he has like a waking vision that almost isn't a vision. It's almost just a like a regular scene that Duncan is still alive. He had had a vision of Duncan among the Fremen when back on Caladan. Mm-hmm. because he tells Duncan about it. And, but then when he's walking along with his mom, they cut to a scene of Duncan with some Fremen, and it's not portrayed as a vision. And I have to just say, again, not wanting to focus too much on the books, but there's, uh, there's some special weird things about Duncan that make it that it's possible, even though we saw Duncan die, it's possible that that's actually a scene with Duncan actually being amongst Fremen. And um, if you go back, if you get a chance to next time you watch the movie, it's not it's not portrayed the way the rest of the visions are. It's portrayed as a image that's a matter of fact. There's nothing visiony about it. So um, I think it's pointing to we may have not, we may not have seen the last of Duncan. Let's put it that way. Yes, and I won't spoil the books for anyone. Um, <laughs> the uh books that were written in the 1960s um but uh, uh some yes. of them well, let, well let, <laughs> let's be honest so what happened was frank herbert kept writing dune books until oh i want to say 1985 1990 something like that and then he started writing books with his son brian is it brian herbert i, I, I don't think they ever wrote together um, oh, Brian started writing after his dad died. Yeah, that might be. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the 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 Dune uh, universe has the writings of Frank Herbert. It has the writings of Brian Herbert. It has Brian Herbert writing with I want to say Frederick Pohl, uh, Kevin somebody, Anderson. I can't remember some other Kevin Anderson. Okay, and uh, so there's a lot written about the Dune universe, but only. I want to say five or six books that were written by Frank Herbert. Um, and then everything else is stuff that his son has written and it gets increasingly weird. Um, I mean, I haven't read all of them, but uh, there's, I, you, there's know, you know, I, I treat, I treat the Brian Herbert books like, like I do the, the star Wars prequels uh, in, in that. Um, I, I acknowledge that some people think that they exist, um, but uh, I, I will ignore their existence. Um, and uh, I mean, even like, by the time we get to like the fifth Frank Herbert sequel, like it's pretty weird, uh, and uh, I just I just didn't like the storytelling in, in the Brian Herbert ones, uh, frankly. Um, well, both Star Wars and Star Trek have ways of separating what's called what's quote unquote canon from non canon, right? So for Star Trek, if it's if it's in the TV shows, it's in one class, and if it's in the books, it's in a different. And I think Star Wars has a similar thing with shows and movies versus books but there's a way to separate you know you get some of these giant franchises and there's just lots of people that have written a lot of stuff and you'd go crazy if you tried to commit all of it uh, or commit to all of it in your stories but anyhow um but take a look and see if you don't think that there's something uh i think they're laying the groundwork for jason momoa to be back next movie but we'll see i have a question about the worms okay so we see the worms uh, travel great distances through the ground. Um, that takes a lot of energy, mm-hmm. right? Like earthworms can go through the ground, but they tend to stay near the surface and they get they go through loosely packed material. I mean, I guess I guess sand dunes are fairly loosely packed. But what I'm getting at here is 
there isn't an obvious energy source. Um, you and I have both read stuff from David Grinspoon, who's a xenobiologist. Is that the right speculative xenobiology? Um, uh, astrobiologist. Uh, yeah. Astrobiologist. Thank you. Astrobiology is a better mm -hmm. way to put it. So he, he, he sort of tries to figure out how energy systems would work on other planets using different chemistries. But there's very little energy on Dune other than solar energy. And there's, and there's almost no creatures that directly harness solar energy. They show a little mouse that lives out in the desert that's got giant ears and any precipitation that it gets out of the atmosphere funnels down. And there's a, it's, a, it's a cute little scene, but there's very, very little to eat on the planet. So these worms require a huge amount of energy to uh, tunnel through the earth. And, you know, a human being is not very much energy, right? It's uh, 3,500 kilocals per uh, kilogram, no, per pound. So if Timothy Chalumet is 140 pounds soaking wet, um, that's, that's generous. You know, you're talking, yeah, uh, well, let's say 100 pounds, <laughs> make the math nice and easy. You know, that's only 350,000 kilocals, um, which is nothing. Right. Yeah. So um, for all the for, for all the giant giant that, sandworm. Yeah. Yeah. For a for a twelve hundred meter long sandworm. Right. To eat a to eat a little person that's one point seven five meters long. It's just not. Um, I, I just feel like uh, if the book was written in the twenty first century instead of the nineteen sixties. There might have been Frank Herbert might have spent more time on the ecology of the planet. I gather there's a lot in later books written of the ecology uh, Arrakis, but in this movie, it seems hard to believe that there's anything enough for the sandworms to eat for there to be two of them. Uh, well, <clears throat> I think uh, you, you might you might get some emails uh, about that um, if there are any hardcore uh, Frank Herbert fans listening to this, um, because yeah. there's there's all kinds of background on the eco ecology of the planet Arrakis uh, in okay. um, in the both in in the book itself and I think in at least one of the appendices uh, to the book um, and I've been trying to rack my brains and remember um, I think even in the second or third book um, it comes out in the storytelling as well in terms of like what are the sandworms? What's their life cycle? How do they how do they survive? But but yeah, like on the screen, what we see, absolutely right. It's it's basically like a blue whale trying to get sustenance uh, from eating a human being, um, and it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's just you know yeah, like like blue whales which travel through a much easier medium, like eat vast amounts of krill every day, right? Just vast amounts. Yeah. So anyhow, all right. But there's so explanations exist. They're just not shown in the film. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. The ecology, the ecology of, of the of, of Dune, and, and you know, as you were mentioning earlier, the the backstory uh, that Frank Herbert created, you know, is not just the backstory of you know this this giant universe spanning uh, spanning empire. It's the backstory of of all of the different religions that came out of this, uh, like you know fighting against AI war uh, that spanned the galaxy uh, and it's the ecology of all these different planets um, that uh, that he created in, in here um, it's all it's all it's all over the place and, and now I'm really running wanting to reread the books now um, but uh, so, so uh, basically uh, well so so it turns out um, right by the time we we meet Fremen and we have this uh, this fight in which Paul is is accepted uh, through through the death of uh, this guy who he had a vision about, um, we're pretty much at the end of the movie. Uh, and th this was, you know, so I, I kind of went into this, um, I think 
So I didn't know the first time that I watched this movie. Uh, I didn't know that it was going to be a two-parter. Oh really? Oh my gosh! It's like the first the first time I saw Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. Oh geez, uh, from nineteen eighty-two or whatever. Yeah, when they get to the when the when the uh, riders of Rohan are riding riding across to the Battle of Helm's Deep, and it goes, and the Lord of the Rings will be concluded in part two, and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. So that's that was your experience. You're like, that was... wait a minute. What do you mean it's over? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, when, uh, fortunately, I was able to see it again. Um, uh, not only to see it in the theater a second time, um, it's the first time I watched it at home, uh, and to get the full theater immersion experience, uh, I was able to sort of understand the pacing a little bit better. Um, but, sure. but yeah, like right. So, so we've laid all this groundwork, right? We've 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 met the family. We've met. You know, we've been on Caladan. We've we understand what. The planet Arrakis is. We've met the the Harkonnens, um, but we're we're really just starting to meet the Fremen, right? We've seen them fight a couple of times. Um, they are like clearly excellent at at what they do, uh, at everything that they do. Duncan said they fight like demons. Demons, yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, yeah, again, is a little part of the semi-problematic way in which the, the Fremen are represented. Um, uh, but, but yes, it, we just barely get to know them. Uh, and then the movie's over. Uh, right. Now, now why do you, why do you say problematic? Uh, it, well, it's just sort of the, the, the sort of classic representation of the noble savage. Um, right. They fight like demons, right. They are uh, both lesser than us as people um, but they are, but like being lesser than us, that makes them more powerful. Um, sure. But, um, yeah. I, sure. I mean, I, I think Herbert, I, again, this is outside the scope of the movie, but he later explains their relationship to other fighting peoples of the empire. And it comes that they come from a particularly strong fighting stock. Right. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, they are definitely the, uh, you know the locals that have low technology, but they make up for uh, with you know homicidal rage what they lack in technology. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's I mean that's that's kind of the uh, uh, more or less the end of the movie, right? We meet we meet Chani. They don't they don't really get to know each other that well, other than like a little bit of a like you know meet cute of like hey I would have shot you if you'd tried to shoot my people kind of a thing. Right. And she thinks he's gonna. She thinks he's gonna die uh, in the fight. She's very convinced that he's just this weakling who's gonna get his ass kicked. And there's this great scene where after he kills the other guy, everybody who's there that's part of the tribe put, puts their hands on his shoulders as he walks by, and it's mm -hmm. like you are one of us now. Yep. Right. You have yeah. been accepted by by besting one of our by one of our besting one of our soldiers. And uh, but there is there is a climactic moment. I feel. Uh, it doesn't just end because uh, Jessica says, hey, help us get off planet. And Paul says, no, we're going to stay here. You know, father, the Duke, you know, my father wanted us to build a future here on Arrakis. And that's what we're going to do. And we are going to fight for Arrakis. And it's important both because as a representation of his um, journey to adulthood, but it's also kind of accepting the path that's going to lead to galactic bloodshed, right? Like oh, yeah. they could have, you know, she wanted them to go back to Caladan and basically find their friends on Caladan and, you know, sort of try to get back to, 
you know, tell the lands rat and, you know, have the other houses get all up in arms. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're going to stay here and we're going to kick ass. Right. And yep. so he's kind of accepting that it's time to get on board at least somewhat with that vision of, uh, you know, a galactic uh, river, rivers of blood kind of. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you see as well, you know, it, he, he wants to carry on sort of the, um, the sort of protectorate, right. That, that his father was trying to set up there. Um, right. In terms of uh, not just working with the, the Fremen, but, but recognizing them as a sovereign people um, and, and all this stuff. Uh, because in the meanwhile, as the Harkonnen have returned uh, to Arrakis, um, they need to make all the money back that they weren't making when they, for like the like month or, you know, a couple of weeks that they were not in charge of this planet. It's, it's not actually really clear um, in the movie how long, how long the turnover took. Um, right. But they're like, nope, well, we weren't making money uh, this whole time. Uh, and they were had been making a giant pile of money. Uh, I think they kind of describe it uh, earlier in the film. Uh, and so they just need to be as brutal as possible and squeeze as much uh, spice and therefore money out of the planet as they can. Uh, well, so that's also those of us who know, again, the book. And there, there's something that the the film's vision is not telling us about the Baron's plans. It turns out we will find out later that what you just said, there are wheels within wheels in, in what go on with characters' heads in these movies. It's very much like, uh, imagine the most complicated game of Risk you've ever played where people are doing deals against other people and forming alliances with people only not really, and they have a master plan. Well, the Baron, that whole thing about squeezing Arrakis actually is a wheel within a wheel. Um, and he's got ulterior motives for sending his nephew to do what he's having his nephew, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's a smart man. He's a smart and brutal man, but he's not just a brutal man. Uh, Right. right, like you know, he he sends right. his his as you described earlier his not very smart and brutal nephew, uh, Raban, to control the planets uh, for a reason. Right, he's not just he's not just right. cruel because he's a dick. He's he's cruel because he thinks he can get something out of it. Right, he's like the uh, Elon Musk of his uh, millennium. Right, <laughs> not like the Hitler of his millennium. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Elon Musk. If you uh, if it's you not, can't tell, couldn't tell, couldn't tell. Um, so yeah, let's see here. Um, yeah, uh, that sort of takes us to the end of the movie. Um, you know, we do we get to see you know this little bit little bit of exposition in terms of what's going on with, with the Harkonnens, but otherwise, you know, basically the Baron survived the attempt on his life and has to hang out in a giant vat of oil uh, to get better for whatever reason, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, all kinds of other creepy and weird things are, are shown on their planets. Um, I guess the one other thing we haven't really talked about is the the, the Sardaukar, uh, who are these these terror troop terror troops that are uh, run by the Imperial uh, government, um, and we get this this kind of super creepy visit to their planet, uh, Seleucus Secundus, um, where they're being uh, I guess trained or... in the blood of sacrifices. Yeah, no, there's yeah, literally, sure. I didn't, I didn't realize the sacrifices the first time I saw it. There are a set of bodies that are bleeding out into a trough and they are taking the blood from that trough 
and using it to mark the foreheads of all their troops. And I'm assuming the sacrifices are maybe the guys who didn't make it in basic training. Like if you uh, if you wash out in the Sadakar, I think I think they have the rest of the people bathe in your blood, maybe. I mean, yeah, as as the as the Fremen have established, uh, you know, blood's not free, so you gotta get that blood from somewhere. Um, yeah, and they go through a lot of it there. Yeah, the Sadakar. Even uh, even Duncan respects the Sadakar because he tells uh, Paul and Jessica that because it's a big secret that the Emperor is directly helping the Baron and uh, and Duncan says, "Oh no, Sadakar were in with the Harkonnen troops." And she, and uh, Jessica says, "Are you sure?" And he says, uh, "I when you fight Sadakar, you know it." basically <laughs> like there's no mistake you fighting a Sadakar from anybody else because there's so much better of fighters than the... and in fact there's a scene where the Atreides are fighting back when the when the Harkonnens take over Arrakis again there's a scene where the Atreides are fighting back against the Harkonnen and doing really well and then the Sadakar show up and slug so yeah yeah yes and they have this really weird language uh, singing in language and it sounds like Tibetan throat singing uh when they sing and even when they talk, it has sort of elements of that as well. It's a, it's a really sound is very sound and language is very important in this movie. Both verbal language and hand signals. It turns out the Bene Gesserit have uh, unspoken hand uh, a, a hand language um, similar to sign language that you can use to communicate things without talking. So language is just super important. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, reading that. I think some of the uh, the language language experts from Game of Thrones uh, worked on this film, uh, and 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 obviously Villeneuve, from his work on on Arrival, uh, has has some experience uh, in that field. Um, yeah, really well done. And I think the um, I was trying to remember. I was there's a a recent episode of uh, the great podcast Song Exploder. Um, with Hans Zimmer, uh, where he's talking about the score for this film. And I, I want to say that Lisa Gerard is one of the voices. From, De from Dead Can Dance? Yes, the great Lisa Gerard. Um, and uh, yeah, so in a way, it's, it's sort of a, uh, um, you know, you hear her, her voice as that sort of like, you know, guttural singing um, on, on the planet of Seleucus Secundus uh, and some of the other places in, in this um, but yeah, uh, great. She's a great collaborator with Hans Zimmer on, on stuff going all the way back to like Gladiator. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, I knew she sang on uh, in Gladiator because one of the songs I really liked with the end of the movie is her. Yeah. Yes. And if you've never heard Dead Can Dance, uh, you should go out and uh, pick up one of their albums right away. Uh, all right. So are we at the point where we can talk about science fiction film? I think I think so. I think we are. All right. So what do we think uh, about the science? So, yeah. So, so again, right, we're, we're the year 10,191, which, again, is seared on my brain from the uh, overly long intro to the 1984 version of this. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, right, so it's, uh, I said incorrectly earlier that it's 10,000 years in the future. It would be 8,000 8, years in the future, um, which makes all the difference. 8,000 years in the future, sure. stuff kind of works the way that uh, you might think it should work. It all kind of hangs together. Um, yeah, we're folding space. Yeah, we have things that are levitating. Um, 
but it all kind of it all kind of makes sense. There's a few weird things like you know spaceships that are stored underwater that don't rust um, and whatnot. Um, so I'm gonna give it uh, I'm gonna give it an I'm gonna give it an eight uh, on the eight out of ten on the science. Well, well it's a hundred points. Yeah, eighty percent. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, my the thing that I think is interesting is obviously Frank Herbert put a lot of time and effort in his world building. Um, I think in some ways he was not creative enough in how he envisioned the future um i think in both i think around genetics i mean obviously he took computers out of the picture intentionally mm -hmm. right but i think in genetics and uh areas like that i think that for instance like sub races of humanity uh or or side sub races is, would be a loaded term um you know, variant races of humanity that was ge that were genetically identified to do certain things that might even be not physically able to interbreed with, uh, you know, uh, Homo sapiens sapiens. Um, I think that we would all say now that um, issues of gender and uh, the many faceted ways that gender can be constructed. I think even ten years later. Ursula Le Guin started um, going into a lot of that stuff in a way that Frank Herbert just didn't um, choose to incorporate into his universe. Mm. So on the one hand, I think that humans will continue. I think 8,000 years from now, humans, there'll be a lot of things that will be recognizable from, from our era. You know, things like love and hate and uh, jealousy and ambition and greed and cowardice and bravery. I think all those things will be identifiable. Um, but I think the future will be weirder than Frank Herbert. Um, I think there will be things even 8,000 years from now that we won't be able to anticipate at all. And I think, I think his universe is maybe, I, it's fine from a scientific standpoint, you know, given that there's, you know, jump drives and stuff like that. Um, I don't have a problem, but I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a 70% just because I feel like as a, as a work of futurism, I don't think that it goes far enough. Like just to just to pick an example of somebody you and I are, uh, know very well, I think Neil Stevenson does envisions a lot more change in five thousand years and seventies than Frank Herbert envisioned. You know, eight thousand years, in, a lot more, a lot, a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. than, yeah, uh, yeah. than Frank Herbert. So um, yeah, I'm going to give it a seventy percent. The science is fine, but I. Uh, I, I do wish he had taken a larger jump. I think even like Larry Niven probably envisioned more fundamental change in human society than Frank Herbert does, right? It's a pretty, it is a pretty small C conservative vision of the virus. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I, yeah, I think, and I might also add that the, the, the mouse that you mentioned earlier, I think was, is also a pretty good, good touch um, to sort of the, demonstrate the, the mouse, uh, that we that oh, we yeah. briefly see with uh, you know just the the fact that um, you know setting the, the the book aside right the fact that that Villeneuve chose to like have this little tiny scene of this little mouse on a sand dune collecting collecting dew in its ears and, and drinking it um, mm -hmm. as like like that's a thing like that's that's absolutely a thing that would exist on that planet uh, and right. like like here it is like taking up valuable screen time. Yeah, he clearly wanted to show again that world building. It reminds me of Cameron, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I just I hope I hope the I hope that humanity 
evolves even more in 8,000 years. 8,000 years ago, humanity looked nothing like it does, right? It was sure. barely, it was barely Neolithic. All right. Yeah. So yeah. fiction. So, fiction. Um, so fiction. Um, so I'm going to, uh, oh gosh, this is hard. Um, as, as I've been discussing, it's difficult to sort of pull this particular piece of film and separate it from the book from the 84 movie. Um, so kind of standing alone, right? How is this particular story told? Uh, gosh, I want to, I want to go, I'm going to go 85% on this. Um, I really do enjoy, um, especially kind of, uh, in retrospect, kind of hearing, hearing you point out the things about like, you know, we don't see the emperor in this movie, right? We don't see, there's a bunch of stuff that is, that is kind of hidden, that is like deliberately behind the scenes, um, that is just like, like, we don't need to know about this. We don't need to see this um, kind of really great sort of like the way that the story is, is told and we're introduced to these characters and they're built, um, you know, and, but, but yeah, minus a few points for kind of how, um, you know, how Chani is set up um, in particular um, and, uh, and maybe a few other things that are uh, escaping my mind right now, but, but yeah, uh, 85%. Yeah, actually, 85 was what I wrote down also. I think that, uh, I think it's very well characterized. Um, I think some people have criticized it for being a somewhat cold film. Um, I think Paul's relationship with his father is very warm, but I, and his, his relationship with the three male figures in his life are, is very warm. Mm -hmm. But everyone else's relationship with everyone else, even, even, uh, even Leto and Jessica, are a fairly, you know, uh, they're not, actually the, the 1984 version of the movie where Leto is played by Jürgen Prochnow and Jessica is played by Francisca Annis. Uh, like their relationship is very warm, but there's, there are not, uh, nobody in this movie is warm with anybody else except uh, Paul's relationship with his father and his two surrogate fathers. Mm -hmm. So... And, and you're going to guarantee that in one area when you when you hire, uh, oh, uh, what's his name, uh, Thanos, Josh uh, Brolin, Josh Josh Brolin to be in yes. your film, right? Yes. There's a great scene in the beginning where uh, the Imperial agent is coming to Caladan, and Leto says, "Smile, Gurney," and because Gurney has this look of stone cold death on his face, and he's like. I am smiling. He's not a he's not a smiler. That guy. No. So yeah, I think we both we both think eighty five percent good strong characterizations. Um, you know, the as a as a as a plot narrative, it's rolling along. It's hard without seeing the whole thing, right? It's like if you evaluated uh, Kill Bill one without seeing Kill Bill two, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you just try to say how how good of a plot is Kill Bill one, right? It doesn't hold up without. Kill Bill. But uh, all right, Phil. Film. Uh, gosh, um, I'm gonna have to say, I'm gonna have to say ninety percent here. Um, and you know, we part part of it, I think, is is the soundtrack. Um, as I mentioned, it's a it's a fantastic, fantastic Hans Zimmer uh, soundtrack. Um, it it fits the soundtrack really fits the storytelling. Um, and uh, and again, the, the, the episode of um, Song Exploder that he's on uh, is, is great and sort of he explains the sort of sonic world building that he does. Um, and, you know, 
Villeneuve, right? He takes all of the, the the things that he has shown us in Blade Runner twenty forty nine and in Arrival, and and really kind of brings a lot of it together to 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 really visually create this these worlds and and uh, this environment. Um, and you know, I, and we hear a lot these days about sort of like uh, oh, in in the world of COVID, we 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 can't express our cinematic vision on the home television screen, um, and I like. It's fine. Like I, I watched the first time I watched this was on um, on my home TV screen, which is uh, a fine fine setup. It was nothing nothing fancy, um, but I thought it it really you know it lent itself well to watching at home. It lent itself well to watching uh, in the theater when I saw it a second time uh, in the IMAX. Um, definitely worth the IMAX. Um, but yeah, um, it's a beautiful film, uh, and that sounds sounds amazing. I saw it in IMAX the first time, and when I saw it the second time, I put it on. We have a we have a home theater system, and I turned the volume way way up, and loved and loved having the volume <laughs> up, and getting all the not just the soundtrack, but all the sound effects and and just the sound of the movie was was very rich. So I'm going to give it 98. Uh, percent I think it is. Uh, like like I've said, as a vision, it is up there with Blade Runner or 2001 um, as just as strong of a set of visual images for a science fiction film as I can imagine. I can't imagine a movie that would have a significantly stronger visual sense than this movie does. It just it was pretty much perfect in terms of taking me both on Caladan. Uh, to a lesser extent, Caladan, but very much for uh, Arrakis, just to a feeling like I was looking at another world, right? That uh, I was looking at images from another world in, a, in another time, the way Star Wars did, right? The, the way just all the greatest science fiction films do world building. So I'm giving it a 98%, which means when we put it all together, we're at 75% for the science, 85% for the fiction, and 94% is our total scores. All right, what are we doing next? What are we doing next? I'm looking at our, at our list here, um, and uh, you mentioned in our discussion, you mentioned Forbidden Planets, uh, which is on our list here. Um, I thought that might be an interesting uh, break to go from something that is fresh out of the cinema to something that is way, way back. I would love to do that. Uh, Leslie Nielsen in a role that is not at all like uh, airplane or uh, what was the uh, the cop one? Uh, naked Naked Gun. Naked Gun. Uh, police uh, Squad. Yeah, and, and Police Squad. Police Squad. Part. Yes. Yeah. Uh, nothing like any of those uh, shows whatsoever at all. Um, yeah. No, I totally think uh, I, I would love to do uh, Forbidden. Fantastic. All right. It's it's a plan. Alrighty. All right. Well, uh, thank you for writing the bit this week, Tim. I I liked it and. Uh, Anything we have for our uh, listeners before we sign off? I think, uh, you know, uh, don't put your hand in the box unless you know what you're getting into. Or or if you do, remember, what's the, what's the mantra? I will not fear. Uh, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death. Yeah, fear is the, obliv- is the little death that leads to oblivion. I don't know the quote exactly, but uh, yes, it's the mantra to not to not fear. Used to have it memorized. Uh, right. Well, a good a good friend yeah. of mine has has written a book called "Fear Is the Mind Killer." Um, it's about uh, it's about uh, training for martial arts. I highly recommend it. Oh, cool! All right, well, uh, thank you all for listening, 
and keep watching science fiction films. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Monty Hall Effect. Our musical themes were written and performed by Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us at themontyhalleffect at gmail.com. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films. <laughs>